I'm Daniel Lightfoot, Business Manager at Syngenta Ornamentals, and welcome to the podcast special, a timely and important look at some of the real issues and developments in professional horticulture, featuring interviews and insights from experts all across the industry. This special episode delves into technical issues, new developments, and the practical challenges that our industry faces day in, day out. Today we're going to be with Ant and Chris from Fargrow who are going to be talking about Subdue, a Syngenta product that we've had for a long time. It's got fabulous wide range of uses. So it'd be really interesting to kind of have another look and another understanding of how it works, what the product's like, what crops are suitable, and maybe touch on some other things like digital and um, plant safety, and more importantly, probably today, resistance management. It's a big issue with the lack of chemicals available these days for growers. So it'd be nice to touch onto that. But Chris and welcome. Thanks for coming on. Before we kick off, I just wondered if uh, you could just introduce yourself a little bit, tell me a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Um, Chris, would you just be able to give, give a bit of an overview, please? Yeah, I've worked at Fargo for quite a few years now as a technical officer uh, responsible for providing support to growers for um, crop protection issues largely, uh, a little bit of... Um, uh, growing media and, and sort of fertilizer issues, but also supporting some of the products that Fargo distribute to the UK. Right, and uh, Anne, I know you're an extremely busy guy with a million things on your plate, but if you can give a, a bit of an overview about yourself and your, and your role at Fargo. Uh, thanks for that, Dan. Um, yeah, well, first and foremost, you know, it's great to um, be doing this with uh, you guys at Syngenta to try and translate some of this information across the growers in this the effective new podcast format. Uh, yes, my name is Ant Surridge. I'm a technical development specialist at Fargro. Um, sort of the things I do within the role are relatively broad. So I work with our plant protection products range, so our next products that we have. Um, I run trials on them with growers and with government organisations to uh, gain data for approvals. So when you see uh, new product approvals come through from Fargro um, and the emus come through, you know, we've got a big team of us in the technical department all putting in uh, work to try and get those through for you guys as growers. But then outside of that quite sort of stringent technical government stuff, there's some more fun uh, on-site grower work that we do with products like Subdue and the whole range of our plant protection products, getting out there with you guys in the field and um, making sure that uh, everyone's understanding how they're working, how we can get them to work best so that you guys as growers are getting maximum efficacy from the products. Thanks very much for that. We're going to have a look today talking about the product Subdue. You guys are very experienced with it. You've got a really good knowledge of it, you, you know, and and if anyone wants to know more about the product, you know, you guys are the people to come to. So can you tell, um, and or Chris, can you tell me a little bit about Subdue for those who don't know it or for those who are experienced and maybe aren't familiar with some of the changes? How does it work? How many times you can apply? And, and a little bit about the active ingredient. Uh, yeah, so Subdue um, is a control for the Umitis fungi. So it's a professional fungicide based on the active ingredient Metalaxor M. So the main uh, two diseases we're looking to control are Pythium and Phytophthora. Uh, so I think that the maximum number of treatments that we have um, for all the applications is, is one. Um, and then, you know, the main way that Matavexil M is working within a plant is to inhibit the biosynthesis of RNA. So because of that, it has quite a few different stages through the development of the disease. It's a life cycle that it can 
be effective. Yeah, in, ter in terms of applications, for most of them, we've got immediate treatment. And uh, for protected ornamentals, we are allowed um, drenched treatments as well. But we have a maximum rate per given area, so it is limited. I mean, it's, it's one plus, I would have said, in terms of treatments. What crops are suitable, you know, are on the label? If we just look at the, you know, kind of focus in on the crops that um, it would be useful for, which ones would you, would you suggest? Well, we are limited to use on ornamentals. It's ornamental plant production is the label. So anything that's edible, we haven't got clearance for. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing, <laughs> just to be absolutely certain, it is a professional pesticide product. So it's, it's not suitable for any home gardeners or amateur users. It is for professional use. Um, and, and legislation ties us up on that. Uh, ornamentals and we also have apart from the label is an extension of authorization for minor use for use in amenity so um, amenity vegetation that is so um, shrubs that are suffering from from a root rot can be treated uh, at the user's own risk it's not a manufacturer's recommendation but that's an additional use on label we have a range of um, pot plants containing nursery stock so we, we've got we've got the ability to mix it into the growing media prior to prior to potting the ability to drench treat it and there are also recommendations for use on um, soil grown chrysanthemums and carnations um, for chrysanthemums there is a pre-planting treatment where it's mixed into the growing media before planting and also possibility following up with the drench treatment uh, uh, that, well that's great chris because it, one of the questions i was going to come on to was talking about drench and foliar I, from what i can see you know look there's foliar and drench application on the label which one would you use when in all in all cases we are treating the growing media so the foliar treatments i think are just a matter of we have a crop there how do we get it to the soil the easiest way is to spray it on the foliage and then rinse it off with overhead irrigation to get it into the root zone so it's it's a matter of practicality on a crop like chrysanthemums where um, you can't actually see the it, it once once the, the crop started to grow the easiest way of applying it is the spray and then we overhead irrigate to place the active ingredient down into the growing growing media so, so you're really looking to get it into the soil into the soil it is taken up by the roots it doesn't it's just it's fully systemic upwards but not downwards not as far as i'm aware downwards so to treat root diseases we need to get it into the root zone not through the root zone into the root zone and the label gives advice on how much water should be applied to do that fantastic and and that, that's quite tricky isn't it and and um and it, it kind of brings me on to probably the next question, method of application, water volumes, nozzles, accurate irrigation. Um, well, we've also, we've also got, in addition to that, we've got outdoor crops, um, recommended as a slightly different and bulb culture as pre-planting, pre-furrow treatments that are allowed. So does that, does that uh, change the way you'd apply it, Chris? You, would you kind of, for outdoor crops, do it in a slightly different way? I think that because the, the outdoor crops are grown differently, we've got in-furrow treatments, um, which suggesting that we're doing it slightly different than we would do in a, in a crop under glass. Um, and also we have slightly differences in the maximum amount we're allowed to use on outdoor container plants. So there are differences there, certainly on the label. But essentially, we're trying to treat the growing you know, the, the root zone that the plant's going to grow through. Well, I, I think that's the important point is understanding the active ingredient, understand where it needs to go in the soil or on the plant, and then adjusting the application to kind of really hit that. Uh, so, uh, and what are your thoughts around how you would do it best and, and so many maybe tips and advice for people that uh, want to get the best out of the product? Yeah, I think 
probably one of the most key points with um, metal axle iron and subdue is that the movement is controlled by water. So it's very important that um, when even when you're applying as a drench, which we generally we want to apply at 10% of pot volume, uh, you've got a moist growing substrate before application and also then irrigation afterwards, um, partly to wash some of the residues of subdue off the leaves down into the growing media where we really want it but also to push it down into the root zone. As Chris rightly said, it's taken up by the roots and then it's moved by the sap stream in the xylem. So it's not flow and mobile. So it's not going to move up and down. So you want it to get into the roots because anything that is on the leaves, A, it's not going to get in, but even if it were to, it wouldn't be moved down. It wouldn't be translocated down into the root system, which is where we're trying to really target these uh, root rock controls. Uh, so yeah, you've really got to make sure you're getting that product down into the root zone so it can be effectively taken up and you're getting that active ingredient moving through the plant. It's also worth mentioning as well that because it is um, systemic in nature, something you need to encourage to really get the product moving through the plant, especially if you're trying to look for control of something like downy mildew, is that the plant itself is actively growing. So it's transported by sap stream, which the sap stream is obviously moved by um, transpiration. So there's island opening up and water being pulled out. If you don't have that active growth within the plant, you're not going to get the active ingredient being spread around the plant. And that's ideally what you want for the downy mildew control, but also for the control of all the diseases mentioned. Obviously, the more area of the plant you can have the active ingredient in, the less opportunity you give for the uh, disease to find any sort of weaknesses, any chinks in the armour to get in. So that's a very important thing to consider. I guess it's also worth considering, um, you know, timing of application with uh, the sort of development of the disease. So subdue has several stages where it can control the disease. Uh, so it inhibits mycelial growth, inhibits the spore sac uh, formation, and inhibits other formations of different structures within the disease. So it's important that you're trying to get it in early before it really starts to take hold. Otherwise, there's some sort of later um, periods of the disease development where it's going to be less effective. So having that early application, pushing it down into the root zone, ensuring there's active growth to spread it around the plant, but making sure you're getting it on top of the uh, disease in early stages before you start having the later sort of fruiting body stages come out where it gets a lot more difficult to individually control but also very difficult to control as a group spread of spores around um, the nursery i think one of the interesting things for that we look we i think you've seen in in ornamentals looking getting water volume down maybe uh, across the industry and reducing water volume you know for kind of resource uh usage but also for efficacy reasons but with this, you're trying to get it in one. You do need a higher water volume to get it into the soil. I think if you see for most, you know, kind of applications, the higher the water volume for soil applications, maybe lighter water volume for foliar applications. So how do you balance trying to reduce water volumes in general in, in, in ornamentals with saying that you do need high water volume to get this into the soil? Or where, do, where do you pitch that and how, how do you kind of see... What, what the right maybe water volume is for this particular product and how would you kind of know you've got it right? Yeah, I think with um, water volumes, you know, it's very much uh, horses for courses, obviously with a lot of the biopesticides and the foliar applied um, insecticides and reducing water volumes as we've seen from the work at Silso can be massively effective. 
So you want to keep it on the lead. So some of the higher water volumes that we're seeing is actually washing quite a significant amount of active ingredient off the leaf onto the soil. But then um, it must juxtapose to that is uh, a product like Subdue, where that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're not trying to target foliar areas of the plant. We're trying to get as much of that active ingredient onto the soil surface and then also getting it pushed down into the root zone. So it is one of those where a higher water volume it's going to be more effective to get the uh, drench really pushed down into the root zone. But it's understanding that it's effective for this product because that's the mode of action you're looking to try and um, enable. Whereas for insect size that you're trying to keep uh, on the leaf or maybe reach the underside of the leaf, there's other uh, lower water volume options that would be more effective. So it's very much an idea of, you know, as a grower, looking at what it is that you're trying to achieve with the product and understanding from that what the best water volume is. So whether you're trying to hold onto the leaf or pushing the product down into the um, active root zone. Well, we want to get into the root zone. We don't want to get it through the root zone. Otherwise, we've, you know, it's, it's sort of treating plants in the, in the sort of poor growing season through the winter. The growing media may be moist already. So we then have some issues because if we put too much water on, when we get the, the comp growing media too wet, uh, and so if we put too much water on, we can actually rinse it right through the grow meter and that's not going to work like that either. Uh, very often growers will probably want to treat for scarab fly at the same time. They probably won't want to put two, two treatments on. Most of the nematodes, as far as I'm aware, are compatible with subdue, so they can go on as a tank mix. Um, I do hesitate a little bit on that because some people are putting nematodes on through um, stock tanks, through uh, dosing equipment such as dosatrons, and I'm not convinced that Two will be compatible as a concentrate. I think interestingly for me, Ant picked up on something, and I guess as a technical person, you see this all the time. And I think at Syngenta, this is probably the one thing if anyone asks me for some advice or, or some information that, that's been important to me being at Syngenta for the last six years. Understanding the active ingredient and the mode of action is really important because then you understand how the active ingredient works and then the best way to get the best out of it. And I know a lot of the active ingredients have got ridiculously long names that most of us can't spell, let alone say. And But it is really important that if you understand the active, understand how it works and understand, you know, kind of how it works within the plant and the differences in the actives, you're really going to get a much better way of, of getting the best use out of the product. So if anyone said to me, what do you think is most important is understand the active. Do you the, the, the other thing that I don't think we covered is actually active outside the plant as well in the soil. So if, if we've got Pythium or Phytophthora growing in the soil, it hasn't made the plant, it's actually active outside of the plant as well as in the plant. But, but do you get a lot of questions about understanding actives? Is that something that you get a lot of questions on? They just want to know that it's going to work. They complain if it doesn't. Uh, and they want to know how to use it because the label isn't terribly clear very often. So, so they want, is it best use advice? That, that's mainly what people best want. Best use they advice. Want or can we mix it with, or how do we put that on? There's quite a large water volume, which is not terribly practical for a lot of growers in, in drenching treatments to use the normal sprays they've got on, on nursery, or they may not be. Well, well, one question I've got then, uh, seeing as we're going to ask questions about that, is temperature on application an issue? Well, we've got the issue that Ant's already raised, that if the plant isn't actively growing, it's not going to get taken up um, very well. So, I mean, if we've got a problem, we want to treat, but we also don't want to get the plant so waterlogged because the plant isn't actually translocating. It's not going to take the water up. We've just put in the growing media. We've got to balance this out a bit and, and you know, very cold conditions in winter. Um, 
plant shut down pretty well. Yeah, I think this is also you know, a prime opportunity to, as I often do in these circumstances, discuss how uh, sensors can help with uh, areas like this. So the two key points that we've mentioned so far is you don't want the growing media sitting too wet and you want the uh, plant to be actively growing. So you know, very simply, uh, a grower could have a couple of um, uh, volumetric water uh, counters within the uh, pots just a couple that aren't even you know, necessarily connected to a wireless system just so they can go out and get an understanding of uh, you know, quantifiable understanding of exactly how wet a pot is and then similarly with active growth if you have um, sensors within the glass house and those sensors have a capacity to give you a, a VPD reading a vapor pressure deficit reading and you can look up some literature on what the sort of vague zones for active growth are I think generally we sort of say for a lot of crops you know sort of 0.8 kilopascals to 1.2 kilopascals you're going to have some level of active growth there um so if you can stick within those zones you know from the data you then have quite an objective viewpoint to say you know it's very likely that there's going to be active growth and also if you've got that volumetric water content of the pot below a level um that's going to be detrimental so not hitting anaerobic conditions but above a point that's not drying out and affecting the plant, you can assume that that range there is going to be pretty good for both your nematodes and the ability for subdue to be actively uptaken and spread throughout the plant. That's a brilliant point. And we can all see that technology is having a massive uh, impact in kind of getting better efficacy from, from, from these products. So, but, but technology in, in terms of that water, uh, vapor pressure deficit and, and other things as a kind of potentially a bit scary for people thinking oh i've got to, you know add in all this technology is is it scary or is it is it quite straightforward um i think there's definitely you know, a bit of an issue in horticulture at the moment that there's a bit of a digital divide some of the young people that come into horticulture are very sort of digital native they've grown up with iphones and xboxes they're very used to it but perhaps some of the older growers you know they've seen it that sort of technology come in whilst they've been growing and haven't necessarily engaged with it as much, which is what creates this digital divide. But it doesn't need to be a scary process. You know, you're not ever going to replace a grower with a bit of technology. But what you can do is optimise that grower's job and make it easier for them. So with the sort of systems that we work particularly closely with, like 30 megahertz, you know, you can have any system in, they're all going to produce data and have... Um, that data there that's going to be actionable and one of the great things about a system a cloud-based system where you have a dashboard is you can make it as simple or as complex as you want so we often have organizations that have perhaps a younger grower who's a bit more okay with the technology and then an older grower who is less so and there'll be the younger growers dashboard that's very complicated has a lot of uh, widgets on it for specific things and then the older grower who knows exactly what they want to target and maybe have one or two very clear widgets that's just giving them feedback on a couple of key metrics. So it's very much, you know, with these modular systems, scaling that uh, level of detail to suit the person individually. And that's something as well that, you know, us at Fargrow, we're very engaged with. So we never just want to, you know, sell a grower a sensor. It's about working with them to ensure that the data they're getting with that sensor no matter what level of digital knowledge they have, we are translating that into actionable insights that's making them more productive and more profitable. So it's all about 
people that have the digital skills working with um, people that are less so uh, inclined to bridge that digital divide to make it a less scary experience. Because yeah, I do agree that you know, a lot of these systems, especially some of the very advanced glass house systems, when you get them in, you, know, you almost need to have a sort of degree in computer science to truly understand what's going on with some of them. But then there are modular platforms and sort of ways of exchanging the information that you can make it a lot more simple for everyone to be able to engage with. So people can come to Fargrove for support. That, that would be the first port of call. If you were going to recommend one kind of, you know, if you want to get more involved in digital applications or digital support, what's your first port of call? You know, coming, coming to us at Fargrove is a very good option. Um, what we'll try and do is, you know, a lot of growers already have sensors in and they're probably not utilising the data that they're getting in in the most effective manner. But equally for a lot of um, growers, you know, perhaps they're not massively okay with Excel, whereas you know, someone like me, I've been forced to use through school Excel since uh, year seven. Uh, so I've had a lot of experience with it and I can probably take that data quite easily, transfer it onto Excel and make it you know, visually look more engaging and making stuff visually look more engaging isn't just you know a pretty thing that you can do data visualization very much is a key way of gaining insight so i'd absolutely suggest that you know if you're a grower that's looking to make best use of the data you've already got or advance your uh, digital tools out on the farm get in contact with you know us at fargo and we'll see what we can do and that ranges you know from everything from improving crop protection which is what we're looking at specifically here but also you know yield prediction tying all the sensors that you've got into your erp system and trying to have better prediction of when you're going to hit end dates it all sounds like you know complicated stuff but it's you know the 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 service of these technology providers is to take that complexity out of your hands and at the end of the day it should just run smoothly and give you the actionable insights that you're interested in that's absolutely brilliant and i think that we can we can really see uh how these advantages especially if we're, we're looking at from a regulatory point of view you know kind of real uh, uh i think i think chemicals in in a lot of these areas have, have found that the regulatory challenges and so what we need to do with the with the products we've got is utilize this technology to get the best out of it So going back to what a grower really knows is, is diseases. What what these diseases does subdue control and how and, and more importantly, how do you identify that it's the right one? We have a fair idea from what the plants will suffer from. Um, probably plan out in advance what we're likely to get, hence a, a preventative program. But the damping off diseases of which Pythium, Phytophthora can be some of, it doesn't control all of them. Uh, Rhizoctony is part of the, of the program and a few others as well. And we end, end up with the Theoleviopsis as a root rot. And we've recently been able to use other fungicides, but I think um, the, the chemical fungicides mostly have gone now or not available. So we're left with the biological options. Um, and we can we can use things, some of the trichodermas such as T34 can be used in conjunction with subdue and we'll suppress some of those. But again, we're into hygiene and the normal IPM programs we talked about earlier on. Uh, in terms of identification of what we got, we've got a problem. There certainly used to be some test kits that would which would detect whether it was Pythium phytophthora. Just at the moment, I can't find any availability of any Pythium test kits. Um, samples of course can always go to a plant clinic and be analyzed 
and we can always have a look at the root systems and see how they look and, and you know if something is dying and not well is the is the root looking um, sick or whatever and, and, and sort of identify it through there. Do you apply it curatively or preventively? I know we probably touched on it at, at some point, but there's much discussion about this in the industry. People don't want to put chemicals on if they don't need to, but curative control is always much harder to then kind of regain some control back in terms of managing the disease and preventative applications. Are You, get, you generally get better efficacy from the product when it's preventative you're able to control the product better because you don't have that kind of uh, pop, you know massive population dynamics you're trying to control i always really always makes me think about controlling children i think if you have one child then it's quite easy to control but if you have 20 uh, having uh, um taught um at a college once then it's a lot harder to, to gain control and i think you don't want from a population dynamic point of view you don't want to get it into a position where you, you, you can't control it so it's i always think it's an interesting di dynamic so from your point of view it preventative curative um well, always be careful what i mean by curative because the plants are, are sort of basically had it they've had it and i think if you've got a crop that's going down with it you, you remove what's gone down and then treat treat as curative what hasn't gone down what, what still looks healthy uh, then hopefully it stops spreading but i think once once you start seeing symptoms on the plant for these sorts of diseases i would have thought we we're too late anyway well, uh, well that, that's a really interesting point so at what at what stage then do you apply the product or do, do you apply it before you see any signs of disease at the first stage of disease well, you know where, whereabouts you know i think in an ipm program i would always try and follow all the, the roots of culture hygiene and then on the particularly susceptible plants then treat preventatively I think we've also got an issue if we treat too much preventively, we've got nothing left in the armory and possibly even to, to put in um, some of the biological treatments that are effective against Pythium phytophthora in the program. And you might want to follow up on this, but I, I think that it's probably understanding your crop, isn't it? You're understanding the crops that you have that are most uh, to, you know, kind of tolerant or intolerant to these particular diseases and then maybe applying preventative approach maybe to where you know that there's particularly high risk and then maybe having a more monitoring approach to, to others I, how, how do you see it i think what um chris mentioned earlier is sort of a really key point in this is um understanding the history of your site so if you know you've had phytophthora and pythium issues pretty consistently over previous years yeah you, know, you can say with quite a degree of certainty that there's going to be a lot of resting spores around and it's likely that you're going to have those issues again. Obviously, there's things you can do during the off-season to try and really limit the effects that uh, resting sports might have. So sterilization, um, making sure that stock you're getting in is uh, clean and from a you know, reputable supplier. However, you know, it's a very difficult thing to fully get rid of, um, Phytophthora and Pythium. So there is always that possibility that you're going to have uh, a breakout. And I think the in the idea of not applying preventatively um, is somewhat of a, a misnomer in some situations. So absolutely, you know, you want to follow the IPM pyramid and try and have all the uh, different layers ticked off before you get to a level of control. But what we're trying to do through the IPM pyramid is limit the amount of chemical applications we're making. So you've got to think of it as a, a playoff between, you know, if I apply once preventatively now, yeah, it's slightly earlier than the IPM paradigm might suggest, but it's going to mean that I don't have to apply as regularly later on in the season. Whereas if you start firefighting, 
it might be that you're having to have you know really quite intensive regular sprays once uh, you've got an infection to try and you know stop and mitigate any issues uh, it's also as you know chris rightly said you know if you've got plants in there that you know on the way out the only thing you can do is bin them and you know that's wasted time and money at the end of the day so if you can have a preventative treatment that's going to you know actually mean that you apply less weight of active ingredient over the course of the year and also mean that you throw less out you know it's both um, advantageous from a business perspective but also from the environmental perspective of you know you're putting on less active ingredient so again it's another understanding what you're trying to achieve with the product and you know is um, putting it on earlier going to be more effective in the long run and Chris is absolutely right to, you know say that uh, stuff like T34 trichodermas can be integrated in early to give you that uh, level of control um, but, you know, there are certain times when biopesticides aren't going to be efficacious when perhaps certain species of pythium and um, phytophthora would be. So I'm thinking, you know, lower temperature ranges. Uh, so it's very important to understand that, you know, at the end of the day, what we're looking to do is reduce chemical inputs. And if it means that the timing of the application is perhaps slightly early uh, to give you a level of control where later on in the season you don't have issues, I think that's a better way to go than, you know, strictly following the book entirely and having to try and firefight at the back end of the season or when you've got an infection. That's fantastic. And and I think that you both kind of really hit onto the, you know, some of the really big challenges with it all and, um, you know, a, and a really good way to, to go forward and look, and look at managing it. I think one of the things that kind of cropped up, I guess, in, in that conversation was a little bit about resistance and, you know, we're, we're looking at kind of managing it at the right point, getting the application on at the right time, uh, and and working it in with uh, with other products. Resistance management is a constant issue in managing crops. We've left actives available today. How, how do you factor in resistance management um, with regards to subdue? Is it part of a, an IPM program? And and, and how how do you go about developing one of those? The the first way in which you can reduce the risk of resistance is obviously applying products less, and so. On that, you touch on you know, the foundational concepts of IPM, you know, clean start, cultural controls, monitoring. All of that is going to ensure that you don't have to apply products as often, which is then going to place you know, less of a selection pressure on the um, population of the disease you're looking to target. Um, however, you know, moving into sort of spray alternations and how you can reduce down the risk of resistance Obviously, you've got the uh, FRAC guidelines and the FRAC's code, so the Fungicide Resistance Action Committee. That can be very easily found online, and from that, you can see which separate products, active ingredients, fall into the same different branches of uh, action, and you should be trying to alternate FRAC codes to ensure that there's not uh, consistent pressure on single sites to try and mitigate against the effect of um, resistance. So what you might find is that you have two separate products, that may even have um, two active ingredients that have different names, but they're working on the same site in a very similar way. So one point mutation in a gene could lead to resistance to both, so that entire group. A really effective way of managing against resistance, obviously is alternating between different codes, but often those codes can be acting in quite similar ways. But if you were to move over to more biopesticides, integrating those more regularly into your program, biopesticides have an inherently very low risk of resistance. So if we look at trichodermas again, the way they act, so they have the biostatic um, mode of action, which you know, stops uh, diseases moving through their life cycle. But some of the other ways they act in which is competition for space, you know, out competing in the root zone, 
uh, that is not a mode of action that a disease is going to be able to form some kind of resistance to very quickly at all. So if you can integrate your chemical program, alternating frac codes, um, but then also put in your biopesticides, which such an inherently low level of um, risk to resistance, it really gives you a program overall that has a level of risk to resistance that is very low. So you can use that. And I think a very important point that you touched on earlier, Dan, is that you know, these products really have um, less and less of the conventional chemistry that perhaps is more efficacious at a wider range of temperatures on a wider range of um, diseases and also has more of a curative action. You know, we need to keep the ones that we do have remaining as effective as possible. So although it might seem in the moment like a slightly you know annoying thing to have to really program out what you're going to put on when and integrating in these biopesticides in the long run, it's going to mean that we have effective spray programs for years to come. We're looking at root diseases primarily, but because we've got systemic action for downy mildews, also have a look at what's going on in the foliar world as well for downy mildews in terms of alternation of active ingredients and the timing of those. It's not just straightforward root diseases. I think one of the things that came up in that a little bit was uh, in, you know integrating with other products, looking to the future. I guess from, from what I can see, the, the product looks particularly safe on plants. We don't see any in, any real issues. Are there any issues with, with plant safety if growers are going to apply it? And, and is there anything you need to be aware of when, when they're applying there, it? Yeah, there are, there are a, a few plant species and the label needs to be checked where some damage has been found and the label advises that it's not used on those species. It's been great talking to you and really, you know, uh, it, really interesting. I think... If you, if you were going to go and pick one point about Subdue as a product that you feel is going to really benefit a grower, what would what would that be, Chris? It's good. It's it's going to be good control of um, the, the the water molds, um, root rots. Good control, which is what we all need. And and what what do you think? Yeah, I think generally it's very difficult to look past that point, isn't it? You can often get caught up in um, all the sort of high level technical nuance of a product, but at the end of the day, it's a uh, uh, the chemistry that you know, does its job um you apply it in the ways that we've been through you follow the label guidance and it's going to give you a high level of efficacy against the water molds pythium and phytophthora and i think you know it's very hard to look past that look brilliant guys really glad and grateful to have you on thanks very much for spending your time uh, chatting to me this morning i know you're really really busy i know there's lots going on it's been a crazy year in ornamentals and everyone's worked really hard you know there's loads of support out there from far grow to the growers so um yeah for whatever growers are listening to this this morning or whatever time of day it is then you know please contact us at Syngenta or the guys at Fargrow if you need any any more information thanks so much for listening to the podcast if you want to know more about Syngenta ornamentals then please visit our new website syngentaornamentals.co.uk and have a look at the Syngenta blog which is on there as well which gives some really good technical information about some of the issues that growers are facing at the moment you can find us on social media on instagram and facebook just look for Syngenta ornamentals if you have any questions please email me at daniel.lightfoot at syngenta.com Enjoy the rest of the day.